Hello from Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow, and welcome back to State of the Vote. Every Tuesday, we're going to break down what you need to know about the movement in the congressional races that will determine who controls the House and the Senate, and will ultimately set the foundation for power dynamics going into the presidential election in 2024. We have partnered with our friends at Decision Desk HQ, who are among the most trusted experts in measuring and modeling public opinion and election outcomes. They are the mathletes behind major outlets like The Economist, BuzzFeed News, Vox Media, Insider, and The New York Times for election night results and final calls on races. So from now through Election Day, each week, the DDHQ team is going to walk us through where the biggest movement is happening in what races and why. If you want to follow along, Decision Desk HQ Q.com is where you can find their House and Senate elections models, and they update those daily. I am joined today by Kyle Williams from the DDHQ team. Kyle was one of the lead data scientists behind Decision Desk HQ's record-setting forecasting model for Congress and the Electoral College in 2020. He also holds a PhD in theoretical physics from the University of Illinois. Kyle, thanks for making the time. Thank you so much. You know, I was just uh, nerding out about theoretical physics the other day because they they awarded the Nobel Prize to those scientists who actually demonstrated that quantum entanglement is real. Uh, but that's a different episode. Oh, so, so fun fact. <laughs> we, so fun fact. One of my professors in grad school was a good guy named Paul Quiot, who one of the guy who got yeah. the Nobel Prize in physics was a guy named Anton Zweigler. And those two worked together. And Paul Quiot, in addition to teaching me, teaches swing dance in Champaign, Illinois. And no so way. Paul Quiot, who worked with Anton Zweigler taught me how to swing dance. So small world. Okay, let's dig into the numbers. First, uh, what's going on in the environment? Last week, we gave an overview of the issues and concerns that are sort of shaping the election environment. What have you seen change, if anything, over the last week? Um, And what are the top issues that are actually driving most of the competitive races? So from an environmental perspective, things over the past seven days haven't changed a whole, whole lot uh, from a top line perspective that... Uh, Republicans remain favored to flip the House of Representatives by, uh, have a pretty high probability of flipping the House of Representatives. They're at about a 75% chance, three and four chance to flip the House of Representatives. Right now, we have them taking the House of Representatives with something like a 23-seat majority. So we think the, our model right now thinks Republicans are likely to end up with something like a 20 to 30-seat majority in the House of Representatives, which is not massive by a historical margin, but definitely would prevent Joe Biden and congressional Democrats from passing a lot of their agenda going forward. Uh, on the Senate front, uh, things have changed a little bit more. Uh, there's been some polling in Pennsylvania and Georgia in particular that's been favorable to Democrats. And so, uh, for example, we've sh- our rating in Georgia has shifted from uh, lean Democrat to likely Democrat, uh, favoring Raphael Warnock. Uh, that comes in the wake of some polls that were done following some of the scandals and news this week around Herschel Walker and some of, some of his challenges as a candidate. So overall, uh, things haven't changed a whole, whole lot. Republicans remain quite likely to take the House, and Democrats remain somewhat likely to take the Senate, although the Senate remains significantly closer. Why don't we talk about some specific... You mentioned the Herschel-Walker race, uh, the, the, the Walker-Warnock race uh, in Georgia. Are there any other Senate races uh, that we should be paying attention to? Any insights to be gleaned? So one race in particular I like to highlight because I feel like in a lot of media coverage, it gets some of the least attention is Nevada in particular. So out of all of the really competitive Senate races right now where Democrats are defending vulnerable incumbents, Nevada right now might actually be the most likely to flip from Democrat to Republican. So oftentimes, as you've heard us Mm -hmm. talk about, there are really four uh, Senate races that we think of as being top tier in terms of how competitive they are. Pennsylvania, where 
uh, John Fetterman, the Democrat, currently holds a small advantage over over uh, Dr. Oz. Georgia, where we have Raphael Warnock and um, Herschel Walker. Arizona, where we have Mark Kelly versus Blake Masters. And then the fourth one that, for whatever reason, gets seems to get less attention is Nevada, where uh, incumbent Democrat Catherine Cortez Masto is facing off against former Attorney General Adam Laxall. And right now, in our polling average, Adam Laxall, I think, is ahead by two points, and we have it really, really close in our model right now. That right now, the model gives Catherine Cortez Masto, I think, a 52% chance to win. So that uh, race, Nevada Senate, is a coin flip right now. And you don't hear that discussed for whatever reason, nearly as no. much as Pennsylvania or Arizona right. or Georgia. And maybe to some extent, that's because uh, Adam Laxalt, I tend to hypothesize, is sort of closer to a generic Republican mm -hmm. on some level. Mm -hmm. um, and Catherine Cortez Masto is also sort of a very generic D sort of Democrat. And so even though Nevada Senate has a pretty strong likelihood of being the tipping point state in determining Senate control, you very rarely hear about that race. So I encourage people, don't forget about Nevada. That Nevada Senate race is crucial and might be Republicans' best chance at defeating an incumbent Democratic senator. That's such a that's such a good point because uh, you know the politicos and the practitioners everybody's watching what happens in Nevada but it is not one of the top races that makes it into the media and I think it's this is an interesting point to uh, to make about the attention economy right because the the stuff that gets headlines is usually stuff that you know grabs your attention and and is uh, just sort of is you know like a train wreck you can't stop watching like Doctor Oz in Pennsylvania right uh, Walker. Herschel Walker right exactly and so it gets all the attention and then by pro by as a byproduct get they get all the grassroots donors, right? That all the money starts flooding into those races when, as you mentioned, Nevada is one of the one of the most like important to watch Senate races. Uh, why don't you talk about Ohio for a minute? The Ohio Senate race, your polling average has Tim Ryan up by two points, uh, but you also have the race as about 60% likely that J.D. Vance will win the race. Can you talk about that difference yeah. and how polling averages get factored into the model? So I think this is an important place to talk about how our model combines and sort of thinks about polling and fundamentals simultaneously. So our model looks at the fundamentals of Ohio and says, okay, here in Ohio, we have a state that's very white. We have a state that has a pretty low average educational attainment. We have a state that Donald Trump won twice pretty easily. And so the model looks at those things and thinks, hey, this should be a state that in a year when a Democrat is present, it's a midterm year, Republicans should be pretty clearly favored to hold on to this based strictly on the fundamentals. But then we look at the polling and we see in the polling that uh, J.D. Vance has really struggled relative to where you would expect a Republican to be, that Tim Ryan is often very close or uh, even leading J.D. Vance in a lot of these polls, which cuts against what you would expect in a state like Ohio based on the fundamentals. And so the model you have to remember, it's not just looking at polls. It's not just looking at fundamentals. It's a holistic portrait of these things together. And so the model looks and is like, well, this is a state Republicans probably should be winning. But based on what we're hearing through these polls, J.D. Vance is probably underperforming as a candidate. So even though J.D. Vance has the advantage by about 20% chance probability in terms to win, uh, Tim Ryan is doing better than I think you would expect. So I think what you should really look at the 60% chance for J.D. Vance to win as saying is the model saying, well, a Republican's likely to win because of the way Ohio is in terms of its political alignment, but there's good reason to think based on polling that J.D. Vance is underperforming, which I think is a reasonable way to think about that race. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And just as a reference, 538 has Ryan similarly re leading by 1.6 points in their polling average, but they give Vance a 66% likelihood of winning. So you guys are in the ballpark there. Yeah. And you have to remember that 538, they do it a bit differently too, yeah. where they have different versions of the model that incorporate different kinds of information. Totally.
Uh, okay, let's turn our eyes to the House races. What kind of movement have you seen uh, across the board in House races this last week? And uh, who's worth you know zooming in on? Sure. So the top line story in the House hasn't changed too much. We still have Republicans likely to end up with something like a 20 to 30 seat overall majority. Uh, I think we give them a 75, 76% chance of taking control of the chamber uh, going into the last two years of Biden's first term. Uh, But when we zoom into some individual House seats, there's some interesting stories we can tell. I think the most interesting story this week is Rhode Island's 2nd Congressional District. Uh, So Rhode Island has two congressional districts. And for the past, I'm not even sure, several decades, they've been controlled by Democrats. We normally think of Rhode Island as a safely Democratic state. And at the federal level, That has been the case for several decades. But in Rhode Island's second congressional district, and this is the eastern part of the state, stretching out a bit away from Providence, uh, the, the, I think, several-decade Democratic incumbent James Longevin is retiring, setting up an open-seat race. And this is a district that is sort of more rural, a little more white, the sort of place that has been trending more rightward during the Trump era. And the uh, the Republican nominee there is a fellow named Alan Fung, who almost won the 2014 gubernatorial race against now Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. And during that gubernatorial race in 2014, Alan Fung not only almost won, but he actually carried the geography that is now Rhode Island too. And he is the former uh, he is the former mayor of Cranston, uh, Rhode Island, which is sort of a suburb of Providence. And so he is a well known quantity politically in that state. Um, And so he's probably the best candidate Republicans could have possibly gotten for that seat. And he is running against a fellow named Seth McGazziner, who, if I recall, was involved in the state legislature, and there were some concerns about fundraising. And so you have Seth McGazziner, who sort of is on some level, maybe a a somewhat suboptimal candidate running against Alan Fung, who's probably the most well-known, most skilled Republican in Rhode Island politics um, in a year that should be favorable to Republicans. And so Rhode Island, too, is exactly the kind of place that normally wouldn't be interesting uh, in a typical year, but is the kind of place that Republicans might be able to score an unexpected victory in a midterm year. Amazing. They've only got got two House seats. Yeah, they've only got two House seats. The fact that this could go to a Republican is just insane. So there, yeah. and there was some polling that came out this week that showed Fung, I think, actually leading by five or six points. Now, I think we would all be really surprised if uh, um, Republicans actually won that district by yeah. five or six points. But yeah. based on that, we moved Rhode Island two in our model from likely Democratic to lean Democratic. So this is the kind of district okay. that if you're looking for signs of a large red wave, Rhode Island two is, I think, one of the places that would show up. Okay. Um, the me, other place. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, tell me about New York 19. Oh, so New York 19. Uh, so this is a race that uh, I think we had some new polling come in this week. And I think in particular, this is the kind of place that's been that normally we would expect Republicans to be able to easily hold on to uh, in uh, midterm year, but has been really competitive as a result of, again, things like the Dobbs backlash, things like inflation, um, where we've seen things sort of remain tighter there than we would have expected. That if you asked me two years ago, New York 19 is the kind of place that I would have said, oh, Republicans are going to run away with it but not clear that that is actually happening. Okay. And what was the other one you're going to mention? Oh, the other one I was going to mention was New Mexico's 2nd Congressional District. So this is Southern New Mexico. Now, New Mexico's 2nd Congressional District is interesting because the current version of that district is pretty 
safely, or you might even say likely, Republican most years. Democrats flipped it in 2018, but then they lost it in 2020. It's that kind of a place. And in redistricting, Democrats who control New Mexico's state legislature made that district more competitive, still probably Republican-leaning, but more competitive. And we've, uh, I think this week we actually saw that district go from likely R to lean R in our model based on some new polling. So this is the kind of place where uh, Republicans, I think you generically expect them to hold on to it, but due to some things that went on with redistricting that in this case was favorable to Democrats, you might see Democrats be able to take out the incumbent Republican in that seat. Let's spend a few minutes talking about turnout and in particular your turnout model, because at this stage in the game, everybody's just wondering who's going to actually show up. And there's there's some key demographics, some key coalitions that Democrats require to win uh, in races. I'm talking about younger voters in particular. Um, And I want to unpack exactly how you go about building in a turnout model into your predictions for a couple minutes. So why don't we just start here? Can you give a brief explainer uh, for the folks at home of what a turnout model is? What do we mean when we say that? So when we talk about a turnout model, you can think about that on a couple different levels. One is how many people are going to turn out to vote. We just talked about Rhode Island's 2nd Congressional District. How many people are actually going to show up to vote in Rhode Island's 2nd Congressional District? Um, And then you can also think about that on an individual level that, well, if I'm trying to predict how many people are going to show up to vote in Rhode Island's 2nd Congressional District, well, what kinds of people live in Rhode Island's 2nd Congressional District? If I know John Smith lives, is a registered voter in Rhode Island's 2nd Congressional District, like, do I think John Smith is going to show up to vote or not. Uh, And so answering those sorts of things in concert are the important things we have to address when we think about turnout. Because once we know how many people are going to show up to vote, we can start to think in terms of, oh, what does that population look like? Is it more male? Is it more female? Is it younger? Is it older? And that's going to inform how we think about who's likely to win and be able to pull it out in a particular district. So as a practitioner, when we think about campaigning in the midterms, the first things we think of are, okay, low turnout, old people are going to vote, Republicans are going to do better in general, right? right. Uh, except then, then you add on the referendum factor of the party in power. Like that's where, that's the baseline. That's where you start. So how do you weigh the historical headwinds, right? And what I, like what I just mentioned against what democratic strategists are expecting to be huge numbers of young voters turning out because of abortion and student debt cancellation. So to take a step back from that and unpack that a bit, when people ask me, Kyle, how do you come up with a turnout model? Like, who's going to vote in this election? My somewhat flippant but totally serious answer is, well, the people who are going to show up to vote are the people who have showed up to vote before. That if I'm trying to assess, is somebody likely to show up to vote? The first question I'm going to ask, and by far the most important thing in determining if they're going to show up is, did they vote last time? That right now we're in a midterm year, it's 2022. If I can only ask one question to guess if John Smith is going to show up to vote this year, I'm going to ask, did John did, did John Smith show up to vote in 2018? Because if he showed up to vote in 2018, then he's probably going to show up to vote in 2022. If he did not, it's pretty unlikely. That past voting behavior is by far the most predictive element in future voting behavior. That if, you know, if you take that away, if you don't tell me about somebody's past voting behavior, there's other stuff I can rely on. Older people, as we I think we talked about on last week's episode, are a lot more likely to vote than younger people. People uh, more with a higher level of educational attainment are more likely to vote than people who have a lower level of educational attainment. But all of these things are downstream from did they vote in the past? That if you have someone who is a young person who has a low educational attainment, you might think, oh, they're not likely to vote. But if they voted last time, 
even if they come from those cohorts, they are still really likely to vote next time. And so then to answer your question a little more directly, when we're trying to come up with who is going to show up to vote, how do we balance that against historical trends and where we are uh, in terms of the current environment? What did the group of people who showed up to vote last time look like? Because that is going to be quite similar to the group of people who are going to show up to vote this time. So the 800-pound gorilla in the room really is the Dobbs decision. And the big question mark is what, not necessarily like, uh, oh, it's definitely going to result in everybody voting for Democrats this year, but actually we don't know how it's going to manifest just yet. And, you know, I was talking to a a senior data reporter at a national outlet and uh, showing me some data visualization I thought were interesting. And one of the things that, uh, one of the things I said is there's a big, big difference between voting for a federal candidate who is running on an on a pro-abortion plank and a ballot initiative that is put directly to the voters to question whether or not they support extreme abortion bans in their state, right? Those are two very different uh, decisions when you go into the voting booth. And so when we think about what Dobbs is going to do to the turnout model, we really have to consider what's actually on the ballot. Yeah, one of my favorite things to sort of give the example you just gave and put that to a specific real world thing, let's look at Kansas. So Kansas, like three or four months ago, something like that, we had an abortion referendum on the ballot that even in Kansas, which is a quite conservative state, failed pretty badly, failed by about a two to one margin. But when we go into November, Kansas actually, for some fascinating historical reasons, actually has an incumbent Democratic governor, Laura Kelly, who's running for re-election this year. And so there are a lot of Republicans in Kansas, because again, it's a very conservative state most of the time, who almost certainly voted against the abortion amendment a few months ago, but who are also going to vote against Laura Kelly in the voting booth this November. So, you know, if Laura Kelly, for example, has any path to victory in Kansas, she has to hold on to a lot of those voters who sort of maybe are on some level pro-choice, but maybe in sort of a a wavering way uh, that, you know, that's maybe one of her key paths to victory. So thinking in your mind, you know, what does the kind of voter look like who maybe opposed that abortion amendment in Kansas, but is also going to vote for Derek Schmidt, who's the Republican candidate for governor in Kansas? What is the mindset or the outlook of that kind of person? Because there are a lot of people like that. Yeah, this is so interesting because there's so much talk about, oh, it's going to be a red wave or a blue wave, right? Every midterm election, but actually negative negative, negative partisanship driving turnout means it's really just a punish whoever's in power kind of wave, right? I think that's the way Mike Murphy put it the other day. Um, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that I I think that when we look at any midterm election, we see that sort of negative partisanship punishment that, you know, maybe 2010 is in some way a textbook example of this, that in 2010, uh, people, the public writ large, and especially Republicans were very, very angry at that point in time around the Affordable Care Act and economic conditions. And that election was broadly speaking, a referendum on public anger around the Affordable Care Act, and Democrats were washed out to sea. 2014, you saw a somewhat more muted version of the same thing. Then 2018, you saw an inverted version of that, where you had a lot of public anger around Donald Trump, things Donald Trump was doing in public, and Republicans were punished across the board in 2018 for the most part, even though Donald Trump wasn't even on the ballot. Uh, In 2022, I think the way we're currently seeing things shaping up is Republicans aren't leading in some of the key races by as much as I think we might have expected six months ago or nine months ago, Uh, but we see Overall, Republicans are definitely poised to make gains in, in the House, certainly, and you know, perhaps in the Senate, although, uh, as we talked about earlier, a bit more complex there. Totally. Okay, Kyle, uh, before we wrap for the week, anything else people need to know? Anything you're looking at uh, on the horizon for this next week before we talk to you again? 
Sure. So the only thing I'd point out is uh, Georgia specifically. So Georgia's Senate race is one of the key, key Senate races. If Raphael Warnock can survive, then Democrats' path to holding on to the majority becomes a lot clearer. And this week, we saw some polls come in uh, that were really favorable to Raphael Warnock that increased his probability of victory in our model pretty significantly. But I think it's important to bear in mind that there are going to be more polls uh, before we get to Election Day, that this week there was a lot of public engagement around uh, sort of Herschel Walker's uh, personal life and scandals associated with that, that I think got a lot of traction in the mind of the electorate. That is not going to be front of mind once we get to November, that I think it's quite likely that if the election were tomorrow, Herschel Walker would be in a lot, a lot of trouble. But I think by the time we get to the first week of November, polling is no longer going to reflect some of these scandals that we see this week because different things will be front of mind by the time we get there. So looking at just what happened in a state like Georgia this week around sort of scandals that were on the, uh, on the, you know, in the headlines, that might not impact what happens ultimately at the end. Kyle Williams, talk to you next week. Thank you much. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.